Welcome to another episode of Search News You Can Use with me, Dr. Marie Haynes. This is going to be an interesting episode. We've got a few announcements from Google. There's a new uh, way to export data from Search Console. Um, some interesting information on licensing images and how you can display that in Search now. Um, we're going to talk about ways to increase your odds of getting a featured snippet. And in the Q&A section, we've got some really interesting questions on whether or not it's okay to use use your testimonials on every page, um, and also the ever-going discussion about whether or not Google uses Better Business Bureau ratings. I'm going to give you my thoughts on that again. I know I've talked about that a few times, but there's still a lot of confusion about this, so that will be at the end of this episode. Um, this episode corresponds to newsletter episode 121, which you can find at mariehaines.com slash newsletter. And uh, I'm recording it on Wednesday, February 26th of 2020. So this has been a, a more quiet week than we've had for a while in terms of uh, turbulence with the algorithm. There's still something going on. I talked last week. If you missed last week's episode, there's a lot of really good information about what we think is going on with this turbulence in February. A lot of websites started seeing changes in early February, a few around February 3rd or 4th, a good number between February 7th to 9th, and then again around the 17th to 19th or so, there were a lot of websites that saw really strange changes in, in traffic patterns uh, that seem like they're related to algorithm updates. And uh, I went into great detail last week into why we think Google is doing this. I'm actually working on an article that I hope to have out next week, although it depends on how busy Google is and how many uh, things come across my plate. Um, just to talk more about this turbulence in February, if you lost traffic in February uh, and you feel like your rankings have declined, there can be a few reasons for this, and in some cases, it's going to be very, very challenging to repair those losses um, because we feel like Google has made changes in how they can determine what good quality content is. Um, and I think they're more and more making it so that SEO tricks and loopholes and ways to get, you know, easy links are no longer working as well. Uh, and that's been Google's goal, in my opinion, for years now to make it so that they get better at assessing the good quality content. And, uh, you know, they don't, and now they're not even indexing a lot of lower quality content. I'm not going to recap all of that. Again, I would encourage you to find our last episode. Uh, this would be newsletter episode 120, where uh, I talked talk quite a bit about that. Let's talk, oh, and another thing that I was going to go into great detail this week, but I'm actually going to push this to next week, is this incredible article that Bill Swalski wrote about a patent that just came out that says Google is using, uh, the, Bill's article is called Google Using Website Representation Vectors to Classify with Expertise and Authority. And this article talks about this patent that actually came out around the time of the Medic algorithm, which was August of 2018. Uh, and it talks a little bit more about how Google determines things like expertise and authoritativeness. I was going to talk about it today. I've got a few of my uh, ideas in newsletter this week. And I started to have a discussion with my team. We're starting to have these Wednesday morning discussions before I record podcast. If there's anything where I feel like, you know what, I don't really have a handle on this, or I want to be able to explain this better, then I start talking about it with my team. And my team blew me away 
away with uh, their thoughts on this article, on this patent, and on what we could glean from it. So we're going to spend more time on that, and I will have more information for you next week on uh, that uh, what what we can learn from this patent uh, because I find it's very very interesting. It gets really complicated though. Again, I've written my early thoughts in newsletter, so you can find that there. Um, Something, uh, I believe I mentioned this last week, but worth mentioning again. This whole thing with coronavirus spreading around the world and causing a lot of fear, and especially in the area of travel, it can really impact your website's traffic. Uh, There was an interesting tweet by Gianluca Fiorelli, who uh, said that coronavirus panic affected one of his clients. And he showed an example of uh, a website that ranks for things like travel with kids, uh, traveling to Italy. And um, after all this coronavirus scare, there was much less traffic. Now, that doesn't mean that Google has stopped ranking his client's website, but rather people are less likely to want to travel because of this coronavirus. Um, Conversely, we have a couple of clients now that are seeing incredible spikes in traffic that initially we said, wow, they saw improvements with uh, Google algorithm updates. And when we looked at it more closely, it was actually that they sell things like masks to protect against coronavirus and the increase in traffic when we looked at individual pages that we're seeing increases was mostly on these pages that uh, sell coronavirus protection masks. So keep that in mind. If you have a client that's seeing great increases in traffic or decreases in traffic and you can't really figure out why, start looking at exactly what pages are affected and you may see that there's a connection to uh, this fear about coronavirus. I'm traveling soon. In a couple of weeks, I'll be speaking at SMX Munich and I'm really not that worried um, about, uh, you know, being infected. Uh, I, I think the the, the rate is extremely small, and those who do get infected, you know, the vast majority of people do fine. Uh, but who knows? I mean, in a couple of weeks, there could be even more panic about uh, what's happening in the world, and as it spreads, it could be more serious. So um, we'll see. I, I tend to try not to worry about things that are out of my control, so maybe that's kind of a naive uh, view on life, but uh, it's not impacting my travel so far. Uh, let's talk about Search Console. Just uh, yesterday, or perhaps it was this morning, uh, Google announced that, yeah, I think it was this morning, uh, there's new ways that we can export data from Search Console now. And uh, I played around a little bit with the links section. The links section hasn't changed much other than now you can export directly as an Excel sheet. When I initially did this, I thought that there was data missing. I actually tweeted at John Mueller and said, like, this is great that we can export to Excel, but one of my columns uh, that shows the date discovered by Google was simply just showing hashtags, uh, number signs. And uh, I can't believe I didn't know this. I mean, some of you listening to this are thinking, come on, she did not know that. But when that happens, you can just expand the column in Excel, and all of a sudden you can see your data. Um, And so Excel uh, will create these hashtags, basically, or number signs uh, if the column is too tiny for uh, you to be able to see the data. So nothing much has changed in terms of exporting links um, other than, and it didn't seem to me that we got more links. Now, I only looked at uh, our own link data. I didn't download multiple clients, but I don't think that they've increased the number of links you can get. 
Um, you can get more data, though, if you are looking at things like uh, your clicks, your impressions, your click-through rate, and your position. And you can actually export that uh, in much easier ways now. So if you like playing around with that type of data, then I would really encourage you to look at the new options that you have. Glenn Gabe tweeted that uh, you can export, and this is not a new thing. He's, he's written about this before. You can export all of your data from Search Console beyond the limit of one 1,000 uh, um, URLs uh, or 1,000 entries. You can use tools like Analytics Edge, which uses Excel, uh, Google Data Studio, and things like that. So, um, you know, if you're finding this information useful, and there are many, many ways that you can use this information, then I really would encourage you to be playing around with the data. Uh, it's much, much better when we can give our clients advice that's based on data and numbers as opposed to just, uh, this is a thought we had. Although there's value to that as well. Uh, and, you know, we'll commonly do that. We'll commonly say, uh, we had this idea, you know, Google said this and we think it could mean that. And, you know, uh, but we're very clear in saying when we think it's an idea uh, as opposed to uh, here's something that Google specifically said and here's something that our data specifically backed up. Uh, I think there's value in both of those. We need to always be theorizing. And as long as our recommendations that we're giving to our clients aren't going to be dangerous to them, uh, and again, as long as they're described to our clients as here's something we think that might work, uh, then I think that's fine to do uh, things that way. Um, Google announced as well that there's a new way now to display image licenses. If you use images and these images are licensed, uh, now they announced it today, although it's not live just yet, uh, but they say soon we will begin beta testing a new way for sites to display licensing information about content that appears in Google Images. Um, and so if you are, if that applies to you, if you use licensed images, um, if your own images are licensed and you want to uh, make sure that people can see the licensing agreement, then what happens, uh, so Google did a mock-up of the search results where you'll see uh, some of the images have a little watermark over top of them that says licensable. Uh, and then if you click on that, there's information on the image license. So that's kind of interesting news. Um, there's something we put in newsletter. I, I don't always in podcasts talk about the tips that we put in newsletter, but I really liked this one. This one's from Brian Dean at Backlinko. And he's talking about a new strategy that he's testing out for content. And what he calls it is X versus Y keywords. The example that he gave is that he wrote a post um, that compares hrefs to SEMrush. And uh, the thread, uh, I think it was, um, oh gosh, I can't remember exactly what the post was called, uh, but it got a lot of attention. And in his words, it's easier for it to rank because um, uh, there's not a lot of people writing about X versus Y. There's tons of people that write about, here's why we like SEMrush, here's why we like hrefs, here's how to use these tools. Um, but there were a lot of people that are doing comparative research. And one of the interesting points that Brian said was that when users, users who land on this type of content, they're kind of far down the funnel in terms of, um, you know, somebody who does a search for HREFs versus SEMrush, it's almost like they're ready to buy, right? And they're just trying to decide between which tool they want to use. And those are good 
queries to target uh, if you're trying to sell something, you know, uh, and it depends, obviously, on what the purpose of your writing your article is. Uh, we had a, an, we've had several examples of this that have come up when we do competitor research for our clients. I remember one a couple of years ago that was trying to rank for a particular type of software, and um, there were many, many players in this field. I feel like it was maybe proposal software, something like that. And what we pointed out was that one of the competitors, which I believe was Proposify, um, I could be wrong on this, had some fantastic articles that compared their product to competitors. Now, you'd think, well, these are going to be super biased, right? They were written in a way that did say it wasn't like, oh, our stuff is better and here's all the reasons why. They actually showed some of their shortcomings. And I mean, as an example, I can't remember exactly what was on these pages, but they said things like, uh, you know, this product, we feel ours does better at this, this, and this, but ours is a bit more expensive. Um, things like that. So, it's hard to get your clients to buy into that type of thing. Often there are legal reasons why you wouldn't want to be writing a post uh, describing your competitors. Um, there are competitive reasons to do that, not to do that as well. But if you are able to write content like that, so let's say you're um, you know, creating a particular type of SEO tool and uh, you want to rank for people who are searching for keyword ranking uh, tools, things like that, then... Um, you might write something about why your product, uh, how your product compares to one of the large, well-known tools. Uh, and that has an opportunity to do really well. And there will be less search competition uh, for those queries uh, because not a lot of people are creating that exact type of content. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I loved this tweet from Jennifer Slegg at SMX. Uh, she was talking about um, how to increase your odds of winning a Bing featured snippet. Now, this was specific to Bing, but all of this advice, I think, is very applicable to uh, helping you get a Google featured snippet. Uh, one of the things that was recommended at SMX was that content is divided up clearly with paragraphs. So for those of you who know HTML, the recommendation is to use a P tag, so a paragraph tag, as opposed to a div or a span. And that can help um, Bing and probably Google as well to recognize, oh yes, okay, this is a very clearly a content that's meant to be paragraph um, as opposed to uh, like there's a massive chunk of a thousand words and we can't figure out, um, you know, maybe if you're using divs, it's uh, designed differently so that a user can see the paragraph breaks, but you need to make sure that a search engine can see that as well. So that's kind of interesting. The other uh, thing that she recommended was that headings and subheadings uh, are descriptive and provide categorization and that you should use uh, anything from H1 to H6 tags. There's another, there was a great study that came out uh, this week by Cyrus Shepard at Moz was talking about do we, are H1 tags actually better than H2 tags? Uh, because there's been a lot of controversy over this and SEOs often will say, hey, you've got like 15 H1 tags, maybe you should make this just one or you're using H2s where 
perhaps we think you should use H1s. What the study on Moz determined was that there really wasn't a statistical difference, a significant difference in uh, how well a post ranked, whether they were using H1 or H2 tags. So uh, keep that in mind. Uh, I still think, uh, you know, one of the points that came up after this study came out was that it's good to use H1 tags for accessibility reasons. People who use screen readers uh, can, the screen readers often will grab the H1 tags out of a post um, it, or H1 tag to determine what uh, this post is about. So uh, keep that in mind as you're using these tags. But if your CMS makes it so that all of your headings at the top of every page are H2 instead of H1, I wouldn't worry about that. Going back to Jennifer Slegg's tweet about featured snippets, the last tip that she gave is to make sure that the content is visible. That might seem like a no-brainer, but uh, we see people all the time that are trying to rank stuff that's hidden behind tabs. And when you hide stuff behind tabs, it sort of sends a signal to search engines to say, this isn't super important. And apparently it can make it uh, harder to rank that content in a featured snippet. That completely makes sense. Um, Google clarifies which of Search Console or Analytics is more accurate for tracking Discover traffic. So what do you think? If you were looking for Google Discover traffic, where would you look? Would you prefer to look in Google Analytics or Google Search Console? And the answer is that you need to look in Search Console. Uh, Glenn Gabe tweeted this. I think it was from a Google Help Hangout. Uh, looking for Discover traffic in Google Analytics? Good luck. <laughs> There's no specific referrer in Google Analytics for Discover. Most of it gets categorized under Google Organic. Uh, use Search Console to see Discover clicks and impressions. It would be really nice if we could have a way to um, to, to, to segment those out in Google Analytics. Uh, potentially it's coming, I don't know, but that would be really nice if, if Google could do that. Um, Let's see here. Oh, there was a really good discussion on Twitter, again, about EAT. So anytime there's an EAT discussion, I get loads of people that send it to me. Um, I'm listening to all of these. I, I don't know how you use Twitter, but I follow uh, three to 400 people, and I read every word that everybody writes pretty much every day, uh, although sometimes I, I take off on Friday afternoons. But this was really, really interesting. Um Google, uh, let's see, Russ Jones asked, um, so when looking for EAT, what is Google looking for? Ultimately, there has to be some type of data measure. So Danny Sullivan jumped into the conversation, and I, I really liked what he said. I'm going to quote him here. Our systems aren't looking for EAT. Our raters are using that to see if our systems are working well to show good information. There are many different signals that, if we get it right, align with what a good human EAT assessment would be. And this is important. It's not like there's a score. For a while, there was this rumor or a prevailing thought that many SEOs had that said that there's an EAT score. Now, the patent that I'm going to talk about more next week that Bill Swalski wrote about actually talks about a quality score. That's different than an EAT score. And that's, uh, I don't think that that's what we're talking about here. So EAT is essentially a number of things all put together. And I don't know how many things. I believe that uh, it was PubCon Vegas. Gary Ish said that, uh, you know, EAT conceptualizes many, many different uh, things and that um, 
EAT is, and, and YMYL as well are basically terms that dumb down algorithms. Uh, and so um, understanding, you know, exactly what it is that Google is measuring, it, we can't do that. But if we would like to get uh, a layman's terms um, explanation or essentially uh, just an understanding that I could understand as opposed to like lines and lines of code, the way that the quality raters guidelines have described EAT are essentially the same. Now, there are differences, but for what we uh, think about, I, I would say they're essentially the same. So this conversation got even more interesting. Um, Russ asked, would I be correct in saying that the raters are creating training data or is it purely evaluative and their scoring isn't used to train current or future algorithms? So this is something a lot of people believe that Google uses the quality raters uh, to kind of create a learning set for machine learning. So if there are 10,000 quality raters, there could potentially be more, but if there are 10,000 quality raters and like 98% of them uh, choose you know, X as a better result than Y, uh, does that mean that X is suddenly gonna start Start ranking better. No, it, it doesn't work like that. And Danny actually replied saying, it's not like that. Raider data is not going directly into ranking systems. And uh, he said, the point of having raters is to understand if a proposed algorithmic change seems beneficial when assessed by humans. So I talked about this in a, a bit in the EAT webinar, which um, we just recorded part three of this. You can find it on our YouTube channel. We talked all about trust and what the quality raters guidelines say about trust, what Google, other Google documents say about trust. And I thought it was really interesting how Gary Ish talked about um, how Google engineers use the quality raters. It's worth mentioning again. So let's say that Gary was working on a particular aspect of the algorithm. Let's say Gary wanted to make it so that, uh, you know, posts that talked about carrots curing cancer no longer surfaced well. I think it's a possibility, right? Um, he would write some code that would change the algorithm so that that type of thing didn't happen anymore. Now, that's very vague, right? How does he write code to do that? I don't know those details. I don't know the specific details. And then what he will do is present the quality raters with two different sets of results. One of them is the search results as they would appear today, and the second are the search results as they'd appear with Gary's code in it. And um, then he will ask questions about those two search results and basically ask the quality raters which is better. Uh, and if he's been successful, then most of the quality raters should say, oh yeah, yeah, the results are way better um, with the change that you implemented into it. Um, and then it goes beyond that. Google takes that advice and they do other tests. There was a great article on CNBC that uh, talked about a reporter actually sat in on a meeting where Google was trying to determine a particular change to image search and whether it was worthwhile uh, including. And when they showed it to the quality raters, the quality raters mostly agreed that the search results looked better with this change implemented. So then what they had to do is go see what the cost of that change was. And it turned out that when they actually made that change go live, there was a speed cost to it. It actually made the search results a bit slower. But the Google engineers determined that that speed cost was worth it uh, because the results were so much better. So it's complicated, but the point that I want to make here is that um, the quality raters do not determine what's ranking. 
they're basically just there to test whether whatever the Google engineers changed makes better results or worse results. And how do they know that? That's based on the textbook that Google has given them, which is the Quality Raters Guidelines. A little bit more news, um, information from Ahrefs. This is interesting. We just started using more of Ahrefs keyword ranking data uh, when uh, in times of algorithm updates. It turns out that they've been making some changes to this keyword ranking data. So if, you're, if you've been using this and things seem kind of wonky, it's because they've changed their uh, keyword volume from uh, using a 30-month average to now a 12-month average. And Ahrefs tweeted an example from Coinbase.com in which they said it looks like on Ahrefs there's a sudden drop in traffic, but it's not that there's a drop in, drop in traffic. Rather, uh, the keywords that they rank for are not as popular as they were a year ago. So, you know, a year ago there was probably more search for Bitcoin and, and for things like that. I, I mean, I think it was probably about two years ago that everybody went crazy trying to invest in Bitcoin, even though, um, you know, even people who had nothing to do with cryptocurrency. Um, and so there may have been certain Bitcoin phrases that Ahrefs reported Coinbase as getting loads of traffic for. But fast forward to 2020, and, uh, you know, very few people are searching for those terms. Bitcoin's probably not the greatest example, but certain nuances of, of uh, Bitcoin stories are probably not as popular now as they were a couple of years ago. So um, point being here is if you are using Ahrefs data, then uh, it's going to look a little bit weird. They say they're going to do something to sort of smooth this out. Um, they also say we had a brief issue last week with keyword positions not being updated or returning empty values. I'm going to look into this now because when I did my research into the February algorithm turbulence, I reported last week that there were weird things happening where we were seeing clients have um, a massive increase in keywords that were ranking from page two and beyond, but not much increase in page one keywords. Uh, and so I'm going to see if that's still the case. Uh, and so part of my goal uh, for this week and next is to dig even deeper into that data uh, and determine if we can figure out more what happened there. So knowing that Ahrefs potentially had a bug, it might be that I was looking at um, some not correct data. Uh, and we'll look at, I mean, we use SEMrush as well and, and, uh, and also our own um, um, you know, search console and, and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, we'll have more information for you on that soon, hopefully. Uh, Bing has a new webmaster tools. I have to say, um, I haven't looked at Bing webmaster tools in a long time. And I remember years ago, I felt like it was even better than Google in terms of the data that we got. The thing is that so many of our clients get like 95% of their traffic or, you know, maybe a little bit less from Google as opposed to Bing. So I haven't paid as close attention to Bing as I should. Um, but the new Bing Webmaster Tools, uh, you know, allows for more exports, I believe. Uh, there's a sitemaps diagnosis tool, which looks really, really interesting to see where uh, your potential issues are with your sitemap. And um, apparently backlink data is uh, going to change as the inbound links report from the current portal is going to be integrated with Bing's disavow tool to create a new backlinks report. I definitely want to take a look at that once it's live uh, to see if maybe we can get some more information from Bing, even if we're not as concerned about Bing traffic to, uh, to websites. 
Um, more information uh, again from a Glenn Gabe tweet. Thanks, Glenn, for staying up to date on all of this stuff um, regarding Safari. Safari is um, no longer going to trust security certificates that are valid longer than 13 months. I didn't know that was a thing that people did. I, we've always renewed ours for a, a year at a time. Um, but if you have a security certificate that's valid for more than 398 days, I guess that uh, translates to 13 months, uh, then you may find that Safari is reporting your website as not secure. So that's something you want to avoid, certainly. Um, some local SEO tips. I should mention here that we're going to, we're, we're trying a little partnership with Sterling Sky. This is Joy Hawkins agency that does a lot of local SEO. As my business uh, evolves, we're doing less and less on the local side. Uh, I mean, we still deal with some local businesses, uh, but I feel like we're much stronger in just regular Google organic search than we are local. And so you're going to start to notice in newsletter a few local tips from Joy's company, and uh, and we'll see how that goes over time. But we're really hoping that uh, they can help to keep you up to date on local changes. We're still going to report on uh, much of this, but I feel like like our reporting is not quite as good when we're not really in the weeds. So, um, so this will be uh, interesting to um, hopefully to get information from Joy um, and from her company as well. Her company is really growing. So congrats. This is uh, good stuff. I love to see anybody's SEO company growing because uh, this is an industry that there's so much opportunity in. Uh, and it's challenging to run a business and, um, you know, grow a business and figure out hiring and figure out training uh, in an industry where there aren't a lot of industry standards. So um, any of you who are running a successful SEO business, congrats. This is a, a great thing. Um, speaking of local SEO, uh, let's see here. There was a, a tweet that said um, from Amit Tiwari, my apologies if I mispronounce your name, uh, the benefits of posting fresh images on your Google My Business listing. And so Amit uh, showed a graph where he um, had very few views of his Google My Business listing, uploaded five fresh images, and then for uh, a period of a few days, it seemed like he had um, much more action on his Google My Business listing. Now, this is just one case. It'd be interesting to see other people repeat this, but really it is a good idea to continue with um, uploading current uh, new images as often as you can uh, to Google My Business. Um, let's talk a little bit more about this, uh, keywords in your business description. I've talked about this the last couple of weeks that Google came out with some new documentation that sort of suggested that if you put keywords in your Google My Business description, that it could help improve your rankings. And uh, SEOs have known for quite a while that this is not the case. And Google sort of backtracked and removed that from their post. Um, Darren Shaw, who is uh, you know heavily involved in local SEO, has tested this a few times. And so I'll read his tweet here. We've tested a few times and keywords in the business description did not appear to impact rankings. So either Google changed something doubtful or they really should update this content quick before SEO keywords stuff the hell out of every description on Google My Business. So we do not recommend stuffing keywords into your business description. It's okay to have some in there. Um, think of your users as opposed to uh, will this help in terms of SEO. 
Um, and I thought this was interesting, too. Google told us that in 2019, they removed 4 million fake profiles from Google My Business. I feel like that's not enough. Um, now, I mean, I know people who their entire job is just going through spam listings all day, uh, every day almost, um, to report spam that is competing against their clients. Uh, 4 million fake profiles. I don't know. May I guess that it's still a, a good number, but I feel like there's a lot more spam out there. They apparently removed 75 million reviews for violating policy and 10 million photos, 3 million videos. That's that's really, really interesting. Um, in our newsletter, we have uh, an interesting art or interesting uh, section about finding more guest posting opportunities. And this is, it sounds like a bad thing for us to publish, right? Because we constantly are talking about how guest posting could be seen as something unnatural. Um, something that came up as uh, one of my team who wrote this section on newsletter um, took a quote from a, a Google Help Hangout. I believe, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was from, but I wanted to read this with John Mueller's thoughts on guest posting. I would make sure that you're not doing guest posting on other people's sites just to get a link to your site. That's something the web spam team does sometimes look at and see if these are essentially links that you're placing yourself. If you're placing all these links to yourself, there's, they're not really natural links. That's something where you kind of need to watch out for what you're doing there. And I would recommend using no follow links for a lot of these cases when you're guest posting on other people's sites. So we still do think that guest posting can be helpful in some cases. Um, but if you're guest posting in a place where anybody could get published, they're probably not terribly helpful. One of the things we talked about with uh, how we feel Google is changing how they look at links is I think, now this is theory, but I think that Google can use natural language processing to determine whether a link is actually a recommendation for your content. I think it's pretty easy now with BERT, but I mean, fair enough, I've not actually used BERT, uh, but from what I've read about it, I think it's very, it would be very easy for Google to take a, a paragraph of text with a link inside that paragraph and determine whether the link is there because somebody's recommending content or because of other reasons. And if it's not because somebody's recommending content or recommending an individual or recommending a business, then why would Google want to count this link towards rankings? So keep that in mind if you are guest posting. I've used this example before, but if I, uh, for example, I guest post on, I guest posted on Moz a few years ago with an article about thin content and Panda. And what I did was I also created information on my own website to talk about thin content uh, and backed it up with some client data and some more images and things that I just didn't have room to put in my Moz post. So in my Moz post, um, I actually wrote something about, look, if you want more information on this or you want to see the data behind it, you can go here to my website and find it. Um, and that was linked to from within the guest post. So what I noticed was uh, I got a lot of referral traffic from Moz. And after I started, after that guest post was published, I actually started ranking fairly well for my own website for uh, um, some thin content and Panda uh, queries. And I believe this is not just because I got a link, but because Google could actually see that people were engaging with the link, that people were clicking on it and uh, engaging with my website. Um, so my point is, if you're guest posting, you want to include links that people are actually going to want to click on. 
I don't know whether Google actually looks at click data, although when you sign up for Chrome, the terms of service that you check off say that, or the, the agreement that you check off says that uh, by checking this box, you're basically giving Chrome permission to determine which websites you visit and how you interact with them. I think it's certainly possible that Google uses that information, but I think it's also possible now that they've got better natural language processing uh, abilities that they don't even need to look at whether it's being clicked on, but rather whether the words are true recommendations. And they'll probably combine that with like, okay, well, Moz is seen as an authority in the SEO space. And so uh, there's one thing to have an authoritative SEO website mentioning me. There's another thing if, um, you know, my Buddy has a blog, and they publish my guest post and uh, and link to me. That blog post probably isn't going to have the authority that Moz has, and that link probably wouldn't count for as much. Um, we've got some really, really good recommended reading in newsletter, and my team has done their best to summarize, uh, you know, these articles. So if you don't have time to read them all, they're in newsletter. I really liked uh, the article from Distilled uh, by Dominic Woodman on uh, writing a really good title tag. And there's stuff in there about how they experimented with um, adding a price into a title tag for a particular client, increased traffic by 12%. Interesting things there. So there's more to think about when we're writing title tags than just SEO. We want to be thinking of our users, and that's uh, very important. Let's uh, move on. I'm going to try to get to a couple of Q&A questions here because we got some good ones. If you want to ask me a question to answer on podcast, uh, you can go to our newsletter, mariehaines.com slash newsletter, and there's a form uh, to answer Q&A. And I'll do my best to answer it if, uh, if I can. Um, so this is an interesting one. I'm working on a site that has 30 pages and 20 pages are main landing pages. There are five testimonials in a single landing page with 50 to 60 words in each. And all 20 pages have the same testimonials. So the question is, does that affect quality, page quality, site quality? Um, Again, this is hard to answer without seeing the actual pages, but I think what you're saying is um, you have a section of uh, your, your almost every page on your site uh, that contains testimonials and that those testimonials are the same on multiple pages. This is completely fine, provided that those pages have good content of their own. Um, Google in the quality raters guidelines instructs the quality raters to look at what they call the main content and also the supplemental content. And most likely if you've got things like testimonials that appear on, you know, every page of your site or multiple pages of your site, this is just treated as part of the boilerplate content, um, similar to your sidebar, your footer, uh, things like that. And so it's not like Google's going to say this is duplicate content. However, you need to make sure that those pages also have enough main content uh, so that they're seen as valuable. If you have, you know, 80% of your site is containing just basically uh, one line of text and then these same 20 testimonials, yeah, that's thin content. I, I would not want to have that in Google's index. Um, but if you have good quality content alongside of those testimonials, then uh, that really should be fine. And I wouldn't worry about that. The same person was asking about, they have a section uh, that's called as seen in. And, uh, and then they have eight images that link out to authoritative places. We have something like 
write that on our website where I'll say, you know, um, mentioned in Forbes or an Inc. magazine, things like that. Um, and we do link out, That's all, I think it's on our About page, um, we link out with followed links to those places where uh, I have been mentioned or the company has been mentioned. Um, the concern here was whether those links could be hurting them because the pages that they're linking to are not relevant to their topic. Um, I, you know, I would change those links so that they are relevant. Um, when I, on my page, when it says mentioned in Forbes, I link to the actual page in Forbes where I'm mentioned. Um, and so, you know, Forbes itself is not really relevant uh, to SEO. I mean, they do talk about SEO, uh, but people would not say Forbes is synonymous with SEO. Um, but the page that I was mentioned on is an SEO article. And so uh, I would link to those pages. But even if you can't do do that, I wouldn't worry about this. I think one of the concerns is about leaking page rank. And this is something I'd love to have a discussion with uh, a few people who really know SEO on this topic. The whole idea of leaking page rank is that um, the original page rank model essentially says that uh, page rank can be affected by the links going out of your page and that. Um, uh, I guess the idea is that it can dilute your page rank if you have too many outbound links. Google has sort of denied this over the years. Um, I actually went back and found a help hangout quote from July of uh, 2019. And somebody asked about um, websites that uh, make all outbound links no follow for the purpose of not link leaking link juice. That's hard to say, leaking link juice. Um, and what John said was, that's definitely wrong. Uh, I'm going to read his quote word for word here. It's definitely not the case that if you use normal links on your website, that you would rank any worse than if you put no followed links on all, all outgoing links. I suspect it's even on the contrary, that if you have normal linking on your web page, then you would probably rank a little better over time, essentially because we can see that you're part of the normal web ecosystem. So it's definitely not the case that you have any kind of ranking advantage by marking all outgoing links as no follow. Now, I know you're not talking about making all of your links no follow. I think the idea is as I link out uh, and this as seen in section is probably something again that's a part of your boilerplate content or on a, a huge number of your pages. I really wouldn't worry about it. I would make those followed links and uh, I don't think you need to no follow them at all. And then we've got another, uh, let's see, we'll do one other question here. Right, let's talk about the BBB. Um, where's the question? Does Google use BBB ratings as a search ranking factor? Uh, oh, wait, hang on. Yes, uh, came up again this week. Barry Schwartz again published a no response quoting Danny Sullivan. Bruce Clay joined the discussion two days later by responding to Barry's post with a series of questions suggesting he may think differently. You have discussed the value of a positive BBB profile in the context of EAT. Can you clarify? I feel like whenever I explain this, I'm not getting it out properly. So, um, but, you know, I looked at Bruce Clay's uh, uh, response in this conversation, and I think he actually does a better job at explaining this than, than I can. Um, the question here was apparently, uh, and I'm not sure if it was Bruce Clay or uh, somebody from the company, Bruce Clay, but the tweet that came from Bruce Clay Inc. Um, was talking about a client that saw improvements after their BBB rating went up. Now... I don't think that it's 
black and white like that. Like, I don't think Google actually looks at all at what your BBB rating is. I know that seems contrary to what I've seen, said before. I don't think they look specifically at the BBB. And I think if you're in a country that doesn't have the BBB or doesn't use it, it's not like you have to go out and say, oh, Google likes the BBB, so I need a BBB rating. <laughs> it's hard to say BBB a lot. Um, rather, what Google's looking for are signs that your business has serious reputation issues. Um, and so in this particular case, not they didn't just fix the BBB rating. Here's the tweet from Bruce Clay, Inc. Context, BBB rating reflected clients' poor reviews across the web. The fix required responding to negative reviewers, resolving issues, improving customer service overall. Um, and then he went on to say other things as well. So the point that I'm trying to make here is let's say you have a BBB rating of F. There's an example in the quality raters guidelines of a site called Dome Climber that um, everywhere on the web people were complaining. They couldn't get a refund. They felt that they were scammed by this company. They also had an F Better Business Bureau rating. And that was screenshotted in the quality raters guidelines and shown to the quality raters as a potential sign of low reputation um, or a site that a business that has reputation issues. This is one of those situations where what Google is looking for, they need to find a way to get their quality raters to assess things. So it's not like Google is saying, if the BBB rating is F, then quality equals low. They're looking at, we don't know how many, but a bunch of signals all across the web that say, oh yeah, yeah, there's reputation issues with this business. And we don't know. I mean, is it one of those things where uh, a competitor could suddenly put a bunch of bad reviews for you all online? Is that going to make your rankings drop? My guess is no. My guess is that Google, um, you know, is very complicated in how they figure out whether there are reputation issues with your business. In most cases, if your BBB rating is low, in most cases there's an issue with your business. I say most cases because I've heard stories of somebody said, oh, well, I got one bad review and I didn't pay for BBB and so I couldn't rectify it. Uh, I don't know how that all works. Um, but like there can be situations where something tanks your BBB rating. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden your rankings are going to slip. But if you have a low BBB rating in conjunction with other signals across the web of people consistently saying, I don't trust this company for whatever reason, then that's where we get worried. And we have seen situations. We have one client, I believe I wrote about in the January core update article, uh, that was really working hard in the same things that Bruce Clay just talked about in rectifying their reviews. Uh, one of the things that we recommend doing when a company has bad reviews is doing all you can to respond to those reviews. Now, you don't want to go back to reviews from like four years ago and start responding to them. Um, use common sense here. But respond to the reviews in a way that would let somebody who's reading that review um, understand that you're working on improving your business, that you're working on improving your customer service. So responding to reviews is a good thing. Another thing you can do is 
actually encourage your customers to leave you good reviews. And I know we all hate asking for reviews. Uh, it's not that challenging though. And anytime I've done it for a client uh, and we've reached out to, you know, they'll give us a list of uh, people that they've done business with and we'll reach out to them and say, hey, would you mind writing a review for so-and-so? Uh, and we give them links where, uh, where to do it. Uh, and people do it. You know, people like uh, talking about good service. So try to get good reviews and that can help as well. So hopefully that explains things a little better. I think the BBB rating is very important because it could be representative of a serious problem. But I don't think that it's directly tied in with your rankings. Hopefully that makes more sense. So I think we're going to end it there. Um, I want to mention again that we finished our part three of our EAT webinar and you can find that on YouTube. Uh, had some really good questions and really good discussion on trust. I talked a little bit about scientific consensus and, uh, and some other elements that could cause Google to distrust your website. Um, I'm going to be in Munich in a few weeks talking at SMX. Uh, I'm going to be talking about using the quality raters guidelines to audit your content. I'm actually going to be bringing some new stuff to this talk that I haven't spoken on before. So I'm really excited about that. And like I mentioned, I'm working on this article about the turbulence that we're seeing, uh, with the, um, February algorithm updates or the fallout from the January core update. Uh, so I think you're going to find that interesting. I can't promise that'll be out next week. Uh, it just seems like the more I work on it, the more uh, discussion we have. And and uh, I want to be clear on things before I, I publish it. So hopefully we'll have that soon. As always, if you want to reach out to us to have um, my team do a review of your website, you can reach us at help at mariehaines.com. Um, and uh, I'm always available on Twitter. Although I'll only answer a question that can be answered in a tweet. If it's longer than that, I just, uh, I, I used to spend sometimes eight hours a day on Twitter. I just have to cut it off at some point. So if you have a longer question, ask it in uh, the Q&A section of our newsletter and I'll try to get you in podcast. Thanks again for listening and I wish you the best of luck with your rankings. <laughs> <laughs>